I'm now going to read our scripture for this morning. Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all these, said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, If you're new to Scarlet City, thank you for joining us. My name is Jay O'Brien. I'm the lead pastor here at Scarlet City, and we'd love to connect with you after the gathering. And as has been announced, we have some classes coming up in March, and we'd love for you to consider being a part of that. And today, right after our worship gathering, we're having Explore, a great opportunity to learn about who we are at Scarlet City, our DNA, vision, and values, and uh, what we're about as a church. And pizza will be provided Unfortunately, we used to have hound dogs, and um, we don't need more. I don't know why. Why don't we have hound dogs? It's too far. Oh, sorry. Uh, But we have Marcos? Macy's. Oh, Macy's. Massey's. Oh, man, I'm really butchering this. So it'll be pizza. It'll be great. Um, uh, Clint Massey was our uh, rival for Wilmington High School where I went to school. I don't know why. I, I need to stop. Uh, also, one other thing, uh, a friend, Friedrich's here. Uh, he's planting a church. He's leaving in a month and a half. He and his wife and their family are going to Leipzig. Did I say it right? Leipzig. I know it. Are planting a church in uh, Leipzig, Germany. And so if you have any connections in Germany or would like to meet Frederick, he'll be here right after the gathering, and he'd love to uh, shake your hand. So uh, thanks for joining us this morning. It's great to have you here. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we began a few weeks ago with the genealogy of Jesus. And we looked at, at the very beginning, that Matthew, who wrote this gospel, sets Jesus up to be the king. We have a, what's called a royal genealogy. And then last week, we looked at how, what we bring to the king. We saw the wise men, Herod, Joseph, how they responded to Jesus, and what we can bring into the king, what it means to pay homage to Christ as king. But this week, we want to look at why. Why embrace Jesus as the king? Why, why even bring an offering to him? What, what's the reason behind it? Why we can embrace him. 
And Matthew here in our text, uh, it's often called, and maybe your translation, it begins, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's often viewed as the temptation of Christ. But the term here for tempted actually means to be tested, to be tested by Satan. In, fa- in fact, that term elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, that's how it's translated. Often people went to Jesus and asked him questions to test him, to see his response. We have here a testing for Jesus. And this is what Matthew's bringing to the surface are the credentials. The credentials for Jesus as king. Why embrace him? Does he pass the test? Now, you might be thinking, are we allowed to ask that at church? Are we allowed to ask why? Why embrace Jesus as the king? I mean, shouldn't we just say because he's Jesus? I mean, shouldn't we, because the Bible says so? I mean, what, why do we really need to ask that question? And doesn't Jesus himself say don't test God, right, in our passage? Pastor, what are you doing? Like, why are we asking this question? You know, Matthew brings it to the surface because he understands. In fact, here and throughout the whole gospel, the question before everyone's mind is why? Why would someone embrace Jesus? After all, why would someone embrace any king? I mean, we're Americans. We had a revolution. And we formed a government without a king. We don't want a king. Why would anyone embrace a king. Some people embrace a king because, because they must bow because of force. Jesus never requires people to bow just because of force. Some people bow before a king because it's advantageous socially for them. Uh, last, week, last week we looked at the chief priests and scribes, and they did wicked things in alliance with King Herod because if they hadn't, they would have been executed or they would have lost their social status. But Matthew and the early Christians, they embraced Jesus as king even though it meant persecution. Even though they could be killed because of it. So why embrace Jesus as king? Let's look at four reasons this morning. Why we cannot just bow before him, but embrace him as our king. The first reason is this. Why can we embrace Jesus as king? First reason is because Jesus is willing to be led. Jesus is a king who submits. Jesus is willing to follow. In verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And this comes right after the baptism of Jesus, where the Father pronounces his identity on Jesus and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and sends the Spirit upon him, and then immediately... Jesus is led by God. Jesus is willing to be led. He's a king that can follow. I struggle to be led. If you tell me to go right, my inclination is to go left. I have this rebellious nature in me that I want to do the exact opposite of what anyone tells me that I need to do. And and this is annoying, especially for my wife, Megan. Megan has learned over the years that if there's something she wants me to do, she has to like plant the idea in my head and make me think that I'm the one who came up with what needs to happen. It's like, Jay, maybe you know, the grass one day might, might need to be mowed. 
We need to mow the grass, you know. She plants the idea. If I think I'm the originator of what needs to be done, then I'm more apt to do it. I have this rebellious nature in me. I struggle to be led. Jesus is willing to follow. He's led. But he's not just led by anybody. He doesn't just follow the crowd. Jesus, in our text, he doesn't follow Satan. He resists him. Jesus doesn't follow. He's not led by his appetite. Specifically, we see here that Jesus is led by God. He's led by the Spirit. And it's also expressed in that Jesus is led by Scripture. When Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds with the Word of God. Jesus submits to the Bible. And you might be thinking, hold on. I thought we were talking through why we should embrace Jesus as King. And here he is following the Bible. You know, Many today, we look at Scripture and we don't give it much credibility. We don't see it as an authority in our culture and in our life. Why would Jesus submitting to Scripture mean we should follow him? And there's a number of reasons why we can look down at Scripture and not want to submit to Scripture. One of the reasons is because Scripture is often quoted by people who abuse others. Scripture was preached by preachers as a means of advocating slavery. Scripture can be used by churches to cover up abuse. So why would we submit to Scripture if it's been used by people to perpetuate evil acts? In our text right here, Satan quotes Scripture. In verse 2, or in the second temptation, I'm sorry, Satan says, it is written, it is written that God will command his angels concerning you and, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot on a stone. Satan is quoting scripture. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus could have responded with, wait, hold on. <laughs> if, if Satan's on the scripture team, then I need to go in the other direction. Jesus could have said, if, if Satan's quoting Scripture, then I can't. I need to go somewhere else. And he doesn't. Jesus quotes Scripture himself in response. And why does he do this? Right? I mean, why? Why doesn't Jesus just go the other direction? Why does... Why, does, why is Jesus still seeing Scripture as an authority, even though someone like Satan is using it for his ends? Why does Martin Luther King Jr., when confronted with a racist and religious South, not say, you know what, if that's their God, if they're going to preach from the Bible and advocate slavery and oppression of others, then I'm going in another direction. No. Martin Luther King Jr., he looks at the racist, racist religious South and he quotes the Bible. He says, you need to get in touch with the God you claim to know. He says, but let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream, Amos 5. Why? Why does Jesus, why does Martin Luther King Jr., why do they stay committed to the Bible? Here's why. They know what the Bible is about. That the Bible is a book of redemption, 
a story of liberation, a story of justice and grace. They know that Scripture doesn't compromise justice. It is the foundation on which justice is built. Jesus responds to Satan, Satan's misuse of the Bible by preaching God's word to him. Now, this means for you and I, we need to know the Bible. There, the world is full of people who will misrepresent God and use Scripture for their selfish ends. And it is paramount for us to know the Word of God so that we can rightly discern what God's Word is about. And that's why at Scarlet City, that's why we have preaching from the Bible. That's why we prioritize exegetical and gospel preaching because we want to get connected to the the essence of Scripture and God's work in the world. It's why we're starting equipping classes because we've seen that there's often confusion around God's Word. And we want a, a place where we can be equipped to understand and rightly interpret and handle the Word of God. It means we must enter into this with humility and also discernment. We don't abandon Scripture. Scripture is the means of connecting to God. It is the means of pursuing unity and justice and grace in the world. We follow Jesus because he's willing to be led, and he's led by Scripture. He has an elevated view of the Bible. Also, again, looking at why we can embrace Jesus as king, we see that Jesus suffers. He experiences human pain. In the text it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would imagine that he would be. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Jesus is hungry. Think about that. That God became hungry. And Jesus was God, and often we can lose the humanity of Jesus by focusing just on his deity. And it's interesting why this is even here in the first place. Uh, Satan's response to Jesus in the first temptation, or I'm sorry, when you look at Jesus' response, in the first temptation, uh, Satan says, uh, turn uh, rocks, these stones into bread and feed yourself. Now, later in the gospel, Jesus will perform a miracle in order to feed others. Why not do it here? He's going to feed thousands later, miraculously. He has the power to do this. Why doesn't he just do it here? What's the problem? It's at the heart of why Matthew has this whole episode here, why Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this, because they are pointing to and emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus is a human, that Jesus experiences hunger, that Jesus is in the wilderness. And this is in alignment with, with what we see about Jesus. Jesus at times is exhausted. He needs to sleep and take a nap. <laughs> Jesus experiences sorrow. He, he weeps when his friend dies. Jesus experiences physical pain. He's beaten and abused. Jesus experiences abandonment. His friends desert him. He cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? We're reminded of the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus experiences pain, hunger, exhaustion, sorrow. 
What does the wilderness look like in your life? Are there times when you come to the end? You're, you're hungry, reminded of your human limitations. Are there times where you're, maybe you can relate to Jesus in the exhaustion? You're just tired, weary. Maybe you can relate with the sorrow, the sadness, the overwhelming sadness and despair of life. Maybe physical, maybe relational, abandonment. We're reminded here that Jesus is human like us, and we can relate to him. A few weeks ago, Megan and I went on a date in the short north, and it was the first Saturday of the month, and so we went on a gal- is it gallery hop. Yeah. And uh, it's always an interesting experience walking into a gallery, and I'm a little better than I was, but I remember when we first, when I'd first, when I was younger and I'd walk into a gallery and if there was abstract art, I would look at it and I would see everyone else enjoying what they're seeing, but I would be so confused. Look at this abstract art and I have no connection here. And a friend of mine, Sean Palmer, who was an artist, and some of you may know, he used to be a part of Scarlet City before he moved, he explain to me what abstract art is about, that it's actually creating a canvas in which you can connect. And it's kind of open-ended for the, for the seer to read their own story into what's happening. And I thought, oh, huh, that's interesting. But even still, even with that knowledge of what the artist might be trying to do, I'm often confused. And when we were in one particular gallery, I was confused by some of the abstract art, but then I saw a painting of a landscape in Clintonville. And immediately I'm like, okay, I can connect here. That, this is Clintonville. This is where I live. There's a bridge. I've seen the bridge. There's a connection. This confusion. I need help. Is there an artist here who can explain what is happening? Painting of Clintonville, connection. You know, when we look at the deity of Jesus, there's often confusion. Rightfully, God transcendent, creator. There's questions, and we need God's word, and we need good thinkers to explain some of it for us, but his humanity, connection. Jesus experienced temptation. Jesus experienced sorrow and pain and abandonment. And as a result, in the wildernesses of my life, I can trust him. Jesus is a king who's willing to enter the wilderness, willing to experience sorrow, abandonment, and pain. He's a king we can trust. Why well, embrace Jesus as king? Another reason is that Jesus refrains. He refrains. He doesn't use power for selfish gain. In our passage, in our text, there's three temptations or tests from Satan. And we've referenced two, but let's look at them a little closer. In each temptation that Satan brings, he's trying to get Jesus to use his power for himself. And in each case, let's look at how Jesus responds. In verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan is trying to get Jesus to use his power to feed himself. And Jesus resists. The first temptation is for Jesus to use his power like a magician. 
to turn something into something that can satisfy himself. Jesus resists the temptation to just be a magician. In the second temptation, in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here Satan is twisting God's word. There's always this temptation to twist God's word for personal advantage. And there were a number of messianic figures at this time who would, who would do this, who would make outlandish claims and try to do outlandish works and then would quote God's scripture as a means of backing them up. And how does Jesus respond? He says, do not put God to the test. What, he's, what Jesus is saying here is this, that I don't do just reckless acts and presume that God's going to back me up. That God, that I am at the mercy and will of God the Father, not Him at my mercy. Jesus resists the temptation to be a deluded visionary. And then lastly, the third temptation in verse 8 says, And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus quotes from the Shema. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. In this third temptation, which it's building toward, Satan is wanting Jesus to get the kingdom without the cross. Jesus says no. Jesus refrains from using power for selfish gain. You know, as we consider embracing Jesus as king. We've learned through experience that we don't trust people with ultimate power. We don't trust people in power. As I mentioned, reference earlier, America was founded on a revolution. And one of the fears of the founding fathers was that George Washington wouldn't give up his power, that he'd want to, that he'd want to continue to be president. That's why we have the balance of powers Though it's, though it's not perfect, it does balance power so it doesn't get reserved for just one branch of government. We see power abused by politicians, by pastors, by parents, by CEOs. We've seen the abuse of power. And we have a line for this. It's that absolute power corrupts absolutely. But it's interesting. In The Atlantic, a magazine, it it referenced a, uh, a research professor from NYU, Joe McGee, and, he, and after research and experiments, he came to this conclusion about power. He says, power isn't corrupting. It's not corrupting. It's freeing. Pow what power does is that it liberates the true self to emerge. More of us walk around with kinds of social norms. We work in groups that exert all pressure on us to conform. Once you get into a position of power, then you can be whoever you are. You see, that power isn't restricting, it's freeing. We learn a lot about someone when they enter a position of power. Now, all through the Bible, 
story after story after story after a person of a person who has power abusing others. We see in life story after story after story of people when they enter into power using it to abuse others. And here we have Jesus in the wilderness at the point of hunger. Refrain from using power for his own ends. What does this teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that at his core, at his core, Jesus is a God of love and grace and justice, willing to sacrifice himself on the cross so that people can experience life. Jesus is the king, the one who we can ultimately trust. He refrains from using power for his own end. So why? Why embrace Jesus as king? He's led by God. He experiences the wilderness and pains of life. He refrains from using power for selfish gain. And lastly, why embrace Jesus as king? Because he triumphs. He has victory over Satan in our passage, over sin and death. Matthew's first century Jewish audience, when they read this exchange between Jesus and Satan, they would have immediately called to mind two contrasting experiences. They would have thought of Adam in the, in the garden when Adam was tempted by Satan and Adam failed. They also would have immediately called to mind the Israelites in the wilderness of Exodus when God was delivering his people from slavery. And rather than going from slavery in Egypt to the promised land right away, for 40 years, 40 years, they're in the wilderness. Matthew's audience immediately would have called to mind both Adam and the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites in a desert land where life cannot be sustained, Jesus in the wilderness himself, very likely and possibly the same exact place that the Israelites wandered for years. In fact, Jesus' three responses when he quotes scripture, they're from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. The passage about God's people in the wilderness. Why? What is Matthew trying to say? Where everyone else failed, Jesus succeeds. What we have here is not just a model for how to defeat Satan, for how to resist temptation. What we have here is the one who has gone where we cannot go and done what we cannot do. So that in the temptations and wildernesses of life, we can have the hope a future resurrection. Jesus is led by God into the wilderness, experiencing the pains of life, ultimately leading to the cross. But the cross doesn't have the final word. Satan doesn't have the final word. Jesus rises from the grave, displaying his ultimate authority, his ultimate power, and invites everyone who submits to him, embraces him as their Lord, as their King. He promises an everlasting kingdom. 
What we have here isn't just a model of how to live. What we have here is the king who has lived and died so that we have the hope of a future with him. Why embrace Jesus as king? Because he humbly submits to God. Because he's willing to enter the wilderness. Because he refrains from using power for his own end. And because he displays his ultimate authority and power by rising from the grave. So that we could walk in ultimate life. Will you embrace Jesus as your king this morning? Let's pray. God, we're reminded that you are not a God who uses force to get us to bend the knee. God, I know it's tempting for us to embrace Jesus as King just because maybe it's what our parents did. Maybe it's because how we grew up. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would bring us, each of us, to a personal place where we must wrestle with Jesus and consider what does it look like for me, for us personally, to embrace him. Help us to be honest with ourselves. For those of us who are just wrestling and struggling, give us friends who we can be honest with. And God, ultimately, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't call us to embrace you by force, but you invite us. That you are a good and loving and just God. We pray this in the name of your Son, the power of the Spirit. Amen.